Hello, and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Danny Samet. Danny has tour managed and done merch for a bunch of groups like Thrice, Isley, Two Door Cinema Club, and we get into all that. He also manages the band Sports, and we talk about breaking bands. We actually just cover a whole lot of stuff about the current music climate and really have a big discussion about the challenges facing bands, the small dynamics, and even what it's like to get into doing a job like his. I think this is a really, really awesome conversation, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So tell me about your background and how you got into music and all that fun stuff. So I've always been just a huge music fan. And uh, when I first started high school, that was my first year in that school district. So I was already kind of at a loss for friends and everything. So I kind of instantly got sucked into the local music scene just because a couple of the friends that I did have would bring me to shows. So I just immediately got immersed in the local music scene of Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, eventually I just kept going to these shows and the promoters of the shows noticed that I went there with different people every time. And they asked me, they said, hey, we notice you in here a lot. How would you feel about helping us market to people in high school? Like you could bring tickets to shows to your school and uh, sell tickets at high school. So I did that. And just through that, I kind of just started trying to learn everything that I could. Uh, Eventually I started helping to run shows for them for their bigger shows. And then from there, I graduated high school. And just with the connections that I had made through working at that venue, I just started hitting the road with a bunch of different bands. I think one of the things people are always interested in, though, is so what does that hitting the road with the first band's transition look like? How does that relationship look when you start doing that? It really depends. For It's a different situation for everybody. For me, uh, I had met a band called the Venetia Fair. Oh, yeah, through- I remember the band. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, I met them through a Cincinnati-based band that they played together uh, one time. And I met them, and they took me out on tour. And uh, I basically just helped out with whatever I could. I handled merchandise. I kind of helped them with day-to-day logistics. And basically not fully tour managing them, but doing what I could. And yeah, it got from there, just uh, working my way through and meeting other bands and everything. It's uh, it's all networking, just getting around. And even the first tour, just everything. As you know, everything in music is networking. Yeah, I mean, it is funny because there's this like big pushback now in music that like with the democratization of music that you do see even... Like, I used to believe... Let's call this 2008. I firmly believed that, you know, the band that was the really great networker could make up for 75% of their lack of talent. And I do believe that's lessened. Are you seeing the same thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's one of those things, like, if you look at really any band that's doing well, they're mm. not assholes. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like with the current age of social media and with Twitter, with Facebook Live, with all of the ways that bands are connected to their fans, you really have to be like a good person. And if not a good person, just accessible and friendly. You just got you it's all about like you're in public a lot more, even when you're not physically in public, basically, through social media and everything. So just kind of 
putting yourself out there in an appropriate and positive way, that's the end all be all for a lot of bands at this point, I feel. Yes, I'm I'm with you. And so but I think what is interesting though is though in what you do, it's a lot of the thing that this is somebody I'm basically hiring to sit around me and my friends who I've chosen to make music with. So you do have to be much more personable because you don't get music to market out to you. So is that something you also find as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's especially for somebody that handles merchandise and tour management for a band. We are the first encounter that a fan or venue has with the band. We are the first impression, really. Uh, When a fan comes into the show, they see the merch guy. That person needs to be friendly. That person needs to be engaging. When the band first pulls up to the venue, the first people, the first person in the door is the tour manager. That is the first impression that the venue has. So it's definitely, it's, it's absolutely vital that A, the crew gets along with the band because we're trapped in a metal tube together for weeks on end. It's pretty important that we get along. But beyond that, just has to be professional and approachable at the same time. We are the, like, we are the first and last impression. The band will be out the door before I'm done settling, whether it's merch or settling the show as a tour manager. And it's just it's all about just making sure that everybody involved with the show has a good day with you and your band. I like that. That's a really, really good philosophy. I have not heard espoused uh, much. So let me drill down on two things you said that I want to clarify for people. So you said tour manager, merch person. How often are you finding that that's the same exact person? And what's your experience personally as that? Uh, It really depends on the level of touring. If a band's playing, like, let's say... 700 cap and under rooms it makes sense for there to be somebody that does both me personally i have done both on a couple of tours on the upcoming isley uh headlining tour i'll be handling both some of dustin kenzer's solo stuff i handle both but it gets to the point where at a certain level it's just not possible to do both tasks whether it's because of volume of sales at merch at merch or whether it's because of so many moving pieces with a bigger produced tour you need somebody that can really dial in that specific job but up until that point it does make a lot of sense to have that person handle both nice that's a great answer so the other thing you t- talked about that is that is the uh this is the first point of contact with fans so i think i even say it in my book but there is this Around 2010, I feel like there was this big music business meme going around that in order to sell merch, what you needed to have is the extroverted, flirtatious, friendly merch guy that will kind of coax every fan into buying a piece of merch. And then I feel like I've seen some pushback against that recently. Do you have any thoughts on that subject? The merch itself will sell itself. Obviously, there's like smaller items or CDs that you can upsell while you're at the table. Like if somebody's on the fence about something and expresses that, you can definitely kind of push them into buying it. But as far as the actual like main purchasing of things, if a fan is at the show, they're a fan of that band. Mm-hmm. And if you're an opening band on a tour and they're at your merch table, it's because they were impressed by the band. As long as you have like good apparel items that make sense for your brand and that are aesthetically pleasing. This isn't 2007 anymore. Stop. Like we, you can't just sell neon shirts and expect those to sell. But if you have things that make sense for your band and what your fans enjoy, I don't think there's really a need to just be that cliche, as you were saying, like that super in your face hustling guy. You have to be friendly and you have to talk them through it, but you don't have to just, get in their face and just shove product down their throat. Mm, I like that. So you're talking about how it's not just a neon shirt. So do you have any feelings on what is working today in merch? Yeah, it it, uh, it really depends on the band itself and what their fans represent. Like if you look at Thrice, for example, they are by far the most interesting band I've worked for as far as merchandise goes, because they have so many different kinds of fans. If you look at a band like, let's say, Five Seconds of Summer, let's use them as an example. Five Seconds of Summer, their fan base is really one thing, which is teenage girls. Mm -hmm. So if you look at what teenage girls want to wear, that's what Five Seconds of Summer would want to sell. A band like Thrice, who has fans of all sorts of shapes and sizes, all different walks of life, you have Christian people, you have uh, people that are into them through rock radio, you have people that are into them through the emo scene and all of those people have different tastes as far as apparel goes in general i feel 
that designs are kind of becoming more simple as we go into 2017. Uh, and I just, I feel like in general, people are kind of appreciating more thoughtful art in their merchandise as opposed to the neon days where you just vomited a band's name onto a shirt <laughs> for colors. So, so, some monsters, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so they'll drill down for me on what the more thoughtful is. Uh, it just, it really depends. Like, you really just want to hone in on something that makes sense for the band and for the fans. I'll, I'll use Thrice as an example again. On the To Be Everywhere, To Be Nowhere cycle, we had out a football-style jersey. It was a blue jersey with yellow piping on it. So it was L.A. Rams colors. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a shout-out to their hometown of Los Angeles. It's a high-quality item that the fans would enjoy wearing because A, it represents L.A., B, it's... It's thoughtful, you know? It's mm -hmm. not just a shirt that says thrice. Uh, we had a crest on it with a B design on it to pay homage to the song Black Honey. On the back, it said thrice with the number three. It's just all about the little things that you can do. On uh, the last Say Anything tour, we had a shirt with Max as a legally not Spider-Man swinging a web, and it said your friendly neighborhood Bemis. And oh. that most people that are familiar with Say Anything know that Max is a profound comic book writer mm -hmm. and those fans when they see that shirt they recognize that that's a tie-in to that so it's it's all about ways that you can kind of tie into different aspects of the band in a way that isn't just in your face like oh it's a comic book <laughs> okay so so you think that there is so it sounds like though these designs what they have in common to me is that it almost is signals a level of that the fan gets some depth to what the uh, artist is. And I guess that makes sense because like, if you like a band enough, you've probably done some investigating about who they are outside of just making music. No, exactly. And it's like, it's every fans right now. And my, from my, from my perspective and my experience, fans want to, uh, they, when they are a fan of something, they want to fully dive down that rabbit hole. They want to know everything that that artist is about, whether it's through social media on Twitter, finding out what they do day to day, or whether it's in interviews, hearing them talk about how they write the record. I feel like fans really want that full immersive experience into finding out what makes their favorite artist their favorite artist, you know? And I feel like merchandising is a way that bands can kind of share that with fans in a, le in a more subtle way that lets the artist... It, to tie it all together, mm -hmm. I feel that merchandise can and should be an extension of the artist's art and a way to interact with fans on a level that isn't tweeting back and forth with them. I like that. That's very good. So I feel like when people see, want to do what you do for a living, they have a very huge misconception of what that day actually looks like. Just like when they want to be a record producer and they come into the studio for the first day, 90% mm -hmm. of them go running on day two because they're like, oh, hell, no, <laughs> that's, not what I, that's not what I'm doing with my life. What does your average day look like? So, yeah, as, as you said, there's a lot of people that want to just go on tour because they think it's just riding around the country, hanging out. And there is a lot of hanging out. Sure. We are in a metal tube for eight plus hours a night. But the actual day-to-day, -day, I'll generally wake up around 9.30, 10 a.m., go through emails that I might have missed, or just touch, circle back on things that I got late, late the night before. Uh, we'll usually load in around 11 a.m., I would say is a good average. Load in at 11, and that entails dropping the trailer door, taking all of the merchandise inside. Uh, and then from that point on, from about 11.30, 12 noon, until 4 or 5, really, I'm counting in my inventory from the night before. If there are any issues from the night before, kind of double back, see what those may be, figure that out. Throughout that whole time, I will be getting emails about shipments that are coming, scheduling shipments, ordering new inventory. Uh, so I'm counting it in, I'm setting it up, go out to the trailer, bring in whatever I need that I'm lacking that I sold through the night before. Then doors will open at 6.30 or 7. And then I'm on my feet selling until probably 12, 12.30 or so. And then at that point, I start breaking everything down and counting it out. And then I have to settle up with the venue and pay them their cut from the merchandise sales. And by the time I'm done, it's usually one or two. So that doesn't leave a lot of room for hanging out and sleeping. It does not. Sleeping is... I actually sleep a lot better on tour just huh. because uh, I like the whole coffin, like the black silent coffin of the bunk with 
a little bit of vibration in there from mm. the generator. I don't sleep at home. I sleep a lot better on tour. But yeah, there is not a lot of time for sleeping. It's nice when there's a short drive because then we can go out a little bit in the city and then end up in the venue at the same time the next day. Nice. So what are some tools you're using each day? Like, g- Give me some technology, some tools that really help you do your job better. I'm a huge fan of this app called At Venue. Yes. That's that seems to be the that seems to be the one now, right? Yeah, it is. It's awesome. I love it. It's uh, it it takes away the need for a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. It lets me do everything I need to do in my day on my iOS device, which is perfect. If I'm at the merch table selling and then I have to run out and grab something to restock, I don't necessarily have time to stop selling, pull up my computer, open the spreadsheet, t- plug it in. All I have to do is click away on my phone within 10 seconds it's logged and then it syncs to the cloud and then at the end of the night or whenever i want i can pull up the program on my computer and see all that information and then some on my computer so it really just kind of streamlines running a show from a merchandise perspective beyond that there's an app called master tour which is fantastic it's uh just completely comprehensive everything you need on tour uh the tour manager has the desktop version of it. The tour manager goes in, they upload all of the information that you need for the for the day. Uh, timing, contacts, notes on the venue, everything you could possibly want is right there, and then it syncs to your phone. So you just have everything that you need for the day on your phone. Beyond that, I use a Bose Bluetooth speaker so I mm. can listen to some quality podcasts while <laughs> I'm in and setting up every day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, beyond those three, there's... um. There's a couple of mediocre cash counting apps that you just like plug in however many of each bill you ha- bill denomination you have and it just spits out the gross. None of them seem to last more than a year or so before whoever it is stops paying to keep them up. <laughs> <laughs> That's but funny. I, I I track them down whenever I need to and they get the job done. Nice. And then uh, as far as credit card processing goes, I use Square. It's mm-hmm. super easy. So any reason for Square over PayPal? Um, I just, I feel like Square has more technology out in the marketplace. Like the Square stand with the whole iPad mount and everything is amazing. Yes. Makes it, it, one thing that you run into at the merch table is like, believe it or not, it's 2017. So it's been around for a while, but a lot of fans are still uncomfortable with a credit card transaction on somebody's phone. Mm -hmm. And while it's literally no different than a regular credit card transaction, it's just the whole act of just swiping it on your phone and handing them your phone to sign. It just kind of weirds some of out. So if you have something like the iPad mount, it helps with that. So Uh, So you see more sales happen when you have the iPad square that's in every coffee house in America. Well, I wouldn't say that I see more sales. It's just kind of, it just makes them more, there's there's a comfort level there. Okay. Just have like a big, like recognizable device there. Like it's just, I've there's just comments that you get like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this on the phone. Like it's, you, you should believe it. It's been, it, you've had ample time to adjust. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. It's, it's that, that thing I'm thinking about. I'm like, ah, yeah, we're like about year eight, I think in 2017 of this yeah. being a regular thing. So might want to get used to that. Yeah, I still get people, oh, wow, I didn't know if you'd be able to take cards. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're going to local band shows and every you yeah. know, everybody's having their first big band show, somebody's having that, that show that night at every show. So I guess I can see it. It's still yeah, and that's, a, that's another thing. Like, whatever size band you are, invest in Square, invest in getting a credit card processor just because it's one of those things like, a lot of people just don't carry cash anymore. Mm-hmm. If somebody stops by a show and sees a band that they've never heard of and wants to buy a CD, they won't be able to do that if they don't have cash. So if you have something that can run a credit card, sure, you'll be paying Square whatever their percentage is, but that's another fan right there that you got because you were able to sell them your CD. Uh, agreed. So what are some skills that you need to have that people may not think of with your job? Uh, I think that... The more and more I do this, and then kind of the more and more I work on my podcast, like they both tie in together in the sense that you have to 
be able to talk to every single kind of person. Mm. And you have to be able to have a full conversation with them just because, again, you are the first person, you are really the representation of the band to the fans. They're not able to go talk to the lead singer whenever they want. They're not able to go talk to the guitar player in between bands. I'm there for the entire show, so a lot of times fans will come up to me and either ask about intense things about the band, like, oh, how was so-and-so? Like, I saw they had that podcast where they said something about their depression or something or mm. moving beyond that just oh i didn't like that last record like do you think that they're gonna play a lot from that tonight <laughs> just that you you would be like you get hit with a lot of different kinds of questions when you're at the merch table and it's important to be able to professionally calmly and in a positive way answer all those and deal with them like again i, I can't stress it enough you are the representation of your employer to the mm -hmm. fans. You have to be positive. You have to be a happy, attentive guy. You have to be that person that can engage any kind of person, no matter what mood they're in, and let them make them feel like they were treated well at that band show. It really is the thing, because it, it, it is that thing of like, you know, I always say is like, you know, people come up to me and they're like, oh, you worked with that band? That guy was an asshole. And they tell some story about how the musician was terrible to them at this thing. And it's the thing is like, for me, it's like, well, I deal with them in an entirely different environment. Yeah. If I'm meeting them, it's usually meeting them in the context of they know my work. So we're already on something that's different. But I think that there's the funny thing of like, people have no forgiveness for having an off moment or having a moment where it's just like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm on tour and my life's falling apart right now and you're trying to talk to me. And it's like, you know, I was like out with a friend the other day and it's like, you know, he's in, in a huge band. We're at Whole Foods eating and a kid comes over and wants to tell him how much his music is. It's like, dude, he's having probably the worst moment of his life right now. He's flat broke and everything has gone wrong. <laughs> Give him some space <laughs> to not be the most ideally friendly person in the world. No, right totally. And, like, I'll have people come up to me and say, oh, is so-and-so, like, so-and-so coming out after the show? And, like, this is maybe, like, this happens every single show, like, yeah. half an hour, an hour after the show, and I'm trying to close out merch. People come and say, oh, is so-and-so going to be talking to people? Is so-and-so going to be meeting people? No, no, they're not, because they have to talk to their fans. Family. They have to call their wife. They have to FaceTime their kids. They have to, you know, shower, mm. stuff like that. It's they aren't able to talk to every single fan for every single second that the fans want them there. It's just not a possibility if you want to keep your sanity. Everybody mm. on the road has. I, I read this uh, interview with one of the guys from Death Cab who mm. basically said, and I completely agree with this, he said it perfectly. When you're on tour, you exist in a bubble. And all of your everything that has to do with your life back home still exists without you. Mm. You don't exist in that world during that time, but that world is still moving on. Those six months of being on tour, those six months still occur to your friends, to your family, but it doesn't occur to you in the same way. So mm. it's just it's all about trying to find that connection to your world back home when you're not there. Because no matter how many times you can fly back home in the middle of a tour or whatever it may be you're not actually experiencing that and i think that if fans really realized how much bands were sacrificing to go on tour they would have a real understanding and real appreciation for it i, I think that's a, a fantastic point that it really is not said enough and i think this is like one of the funny things too is is like you'll see and like i've been in the room for this is like that you know it comes time to choose which songs are going to go on a record and you know, I'm of the theory and like my whole new books about this theory that like the only good music is made that's made is when it's really resonant to the songwriter and they're saying what they the thing that's most important to them and most happening inside their head is usually the best song. But oftentimes that is that they miss people that are far away, yet most fans don't experience that emotion, especially if they haven't gone off to college yet, you know, since the majority of record buying is done by people who have not yet left for college. Mm -hmm. It's an emotion they're not going to identify with as much. So it's a really tough one, I think, because it's like, yeah, the, they're, the most important emotion to a successful musician is one that their fan base often hasn't ever felt. Oh, absolutely. And like, if you look at a band like Census Fail right now, uh -huh. every single day, their Twitter mentions, stop talking about politics, play music, <laughs> mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like, no, like yeah. that's what's important to Buddy. That's what's important to the band. Why wouldn't they 
sing about that? Why wouldn't they write songs about that? Like that's at the end of the day, that's what art is about is mm -hmm. expressing how you feel and kind of that cathartic process of letting that out in a constructive way. And I feel like fans always like just, yeah, that, that whole thing with census fail in particular mm -hmm. with their fans. That's a great like, example. Yeah. Just cause they've been very outspoken lately and they've gotten a lot of flack for it, but it's like, I love that about them. Mm -hmm. I love Same. them dearly because of that. You know, it's like they are standing for what they believe in and that's what music's about. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, we all as music fans do have the emotion of like, why can't that band do what I want them to? But it's like, that's just not the way that humans work. Humans are, our brains are designed to grow emotionally and take in new things. And if you keep doing that, it just then, you know, like I, I like I hate being the person who ever trashes a band, but like we've all heard that band that goes back to their old sound after trying making the record they wanted to make that the fans mm -hmm. didn't like, and it never feels good. It may feel okay enough to listen to for a while, but like it's never what the old stuff was, you know. At, like I, I've been using it as an example is like there's a reason that there's something feel. Everybody says there's just something a little off about Blink One Eighty Two California. Oh, absolutely! I love that record though. But. <laughs> but it's just like it's not the same as what you're looking for in their past catalog. So I kind of want to, if you're cool with it, I kind of yeah. want to derail this conversation yeah. real quick. Still kind of on topic, but not yeah, the yeah, broad topic, do. but. It's been really interesting to me, the whole nostalgia aspect of music, especially in mm -hmm. like our sort of neck of the punk emo world. Mm -hmm. It's confusing to me, you know? I love that all these 10-year anniversary tours are happening. They're all doing fantastic. They're doing great for the bands. But I don't know, part of me is wondering if that's healthy for music. I, I, I'm, I'm with you because I don't actually think it's always the um, best thing for... I, I mean, I... I'd be actually would be really curious to see if you see the same thing, but like I think it's the hardest time I've ever seen for bands to break through, for a new band to break through. And I think some of that is because all the oxygen in the room is always sucked up by what old bands who haven't made good records in what's called five years are doing. Oh and, no, absolutely. And it's just that thing, it's like, you know, so all the attention of the blogs that are left, the writers, or whatever's happening on Twitter all day goes to not what who's making the cool new record. It goes to what... I don't like using words like has been, but what somebody who's not doing their best work is sure. pumping out. No, absolutely. It's... Uh, as I've done myself, I've done eight 10-year anniversary tours. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting, the similarities and differences between all of them. It's like... I've, and I have found that some of the ones where the bands do bring out like a newer band, I feel like those bands aren't super well received because the fans are just like, it's becoming a thing where the fans are at this point, they're grown people. They have families, mm -hmm. they have day jobs. It's their night. Yes. They get a sitter, they go out for dinner, they have drinks, they go to the show, they have more drinks then they go home mm -hmm. and they aren't interested in discovering new bands because they it's just not part of their life anymore that, you know that, they listen I, I i i'm a 39 year old guy who still goes to shows all the time yeah. and but my friends who come out with me to those shows are those people and it is true they they want to skip the opening bands so that we can go mm -hmm. eat an expensive dinner no exactly and it's like from my perspective like if you are going to spend money on a ticket why wouldn't you go see the opening bands you're already paying to see them go see them mm-hmm and I think that there, you know, and it's funny thing is like, because the worst thing that could come of like the thought of this is like, well, then bring other bands that were around during that time that want to do the 10 year tour or whatever. And then they'll be happy. And it's like, oh, great. So then no new bands will get the opportunity to be exposed to new audiences. And that just leads to more of this bad cycle of no one being brought up anymore. There's a, there's, I've seen a few of those tours where it's just been like a big nostalgia fest. And those, I feel like those do perform better at the gate really but at the same time it's like as you said you need to have that link to the present and i think that a great example of like like an absolutely ideal anniversary tour is the tour that circus survive is about to go out on for on letting go mm -hmm. it's circus survive me without you and turnover mm. you have all three bands firing on all cylinders putting out fantastic music Agreed. but circus Circa and Me Without You kind of came up at the same time. So you'll have older fans who go to that, but then they'll also hopefully see Turnover, because Turnover is... Yeah, the best. Fucking awesome band. 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that was definitely one of my favorite records of last year. Yes! <laughs> I I, I I I feel like now I'm going to spend the rest of the day thinking about like oh great <laughs> this is another more depressing things for breaking new bands uh, to, to to think about so let's shift gears so you and I talked a little bit about uh, before uh, the podcast about pre-orders tell me about some stuff that you're seeing with pre-orders that you're finding interesting these days um I think that a pre-order in general is an interesting concept just because it's kind of a way for fans to invest in your band mm. like whether it's through a formal merch store or through a crowdfunding platform I feel like it's just a great way to kind of a kind of see the temperature in the room of how your band of how that project is going to do and it's also a way for fans to just really show the band hey I really like you. I'm supporting you. I haven't even heard the album yet. Take my money. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of avenues there to do really cool things with merchandise that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do on tour. Like just the logistics of touring, you can't bring out a million different weird things. But if you look at pre-orders, you'll see like coffee and mm -hmm. custom ringtones. And I've seen stuff as far like in Kickstarter stuff, stuff like that, like handwritten like the actual lyric sheets mm -hmm. from that yep. session like and it's just it's really cool it's a cool way for fans to kind of engage with the band in a way beyond just like buying a t-shirt it's to me i guess i don't know if i'm romanticizing it or not but i just i know that before i started working in music when uh one of my favorite bands would post a pre-order i would immediately do the t-shirt and cd package just because mm -hmm. i support that band and i'm confident that that record will be good and i feel like it's beyond that it's a good way to kind of kickstart the album cycle financially if you do a successful pre-order you'll have that money to kind of go into the cycle with instead of just starting fresh and just going hitting the road while the album drops i a, a thousand percent agreed i guess you, you know it's like the funny thing that so i'm literally like my day the rest of the day today is dealing with the pre-order for my new book and there's this funny thing that when you like start reading the blogs and doing the info on it is that the problem with pre-orders everybody's getting now is that no one wants to pay money for something that they're not going to have for, I mean, sometimes like, sure. you know, like uh, for the thing that's on my mind is the Menzingers is like, they announced this record being a done, while ago, being done literally in the summer and the pre-order went up and it's the funny thing is like, I have no idea what the numbers are. That band has huge enthusiasm. The record's amazing, but like, it is a funny thing, as you see, when you look on the Twitter, so what I did, did was doing this morning, is I'm looking on Twitter, at, I write the band's name and pre-order in, and, you know, while on the internet you can find complaints about anything, but, like, when I do it with books, anything, it's just there's so many people who say, I can't pre-order something three months in advance, I can't pre-order something four months in advance, and et cetera, et cetera. It's so interesting to me, it's just like, okay, so what is the right amount of time that's, like, the patience of the fan is not exceeded with this pre-order i think that in this like it, it's it's such a wide open thing right now and i just i don't think there's an exact answer for that i don't think there's an exact science yet mm. uh for the bands that i manage like mm -hmm. I, in addition to road work i do some smaller end management stuff for the bands that i manage two months maybe mm -hmm. month and a half it's it just it really just depends. I don't think there's an exact science to it, but as you said, attention spans and instant gratification are a very real issue here in this year of 2017 mm -hmm. and I think that that's something that the music industry is going to have to figure out is when to do stuff like that. So let's talk about the bands you're managing. T tell me a little bit about this. So I'm working with a band called Sports right now. There's many bands called I, Sports. So so, the, so this was a funny thing is is my first uh, the way I first uh, got accustomed to uh, this is at one point I ma mastered two different sports bands, and it's not <laughs> even the one you work with. I don't think, and it was like one of those things that when the second one wrote in, I'm like, oh, are you guys adding songs to the last release? They're like, what the fuck are you talking about, weirdo? <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those things. So you're managing sports from sports, where? Sports from Massachusetts, stylized okay. as sports with a period at the end. <laughs> gotcha. Very Well done. Yes. Well done. Yes. So right now they are out on the road, but also working on a record. Uh, mm -hmm. LP number two will be coming out at some point this year. We're kind of getting stuff in line for a label pitch right now. Uh, then we're also working with a uh, artist named Carter Halsey, who lives in Nashville. He's kind of 
twangy Americana singer songwriter, fantastic songwriter. He just moved to Nashville and is working on some music right now. But yeah, beyond that, just kind of taking it one day at a time. My roommate works on it with me. She is the festival assistant for Shaky Knees and Shaky Beats festivals for C3 Entertainment. So she has her time taken up by that, me with my stuff on the road. So it's kind of something in the middle that we just meet on for bands that we're passionate about. Very cool. So I know what my listeners are probably thinking is they go, they're saying, ooh, what does a label pitch look like? For me, a label pitch, it's kind of you want to just outline what you want you want to show the label the best parts of the band. Mm-hmm. You want to pitch the band to them in a way that highlights all of the good parts of it. Include demos for whatever the project that you're specifically shopping, previous material that works, press clippings, promo materials, all of that just represent in one email, one concise bullet-pointed email, the very best parts of your band. So what, what format do you highlight this? Do you make this in a particular app? What are you, what are you doing for that? Uh, I just put it together in an email. Uh, as far as like one sheets go and press clippings, I'll attach links for those or attach a PDF of a one sheet. But as far as the full pitch itself, just kind of in the body of an email, you know, it's one of those things. I've read a number of articles about it. And then as we were talking before the show, we're both mm-hmm. big Mad Men fans mm-hmm. up in Mad Men a couple of times. People don't necessarily, A, want to, or B, have the time to think on what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You want it to be something that hits them right in the face. Here, Here is my band. This is what my band is about. This is what we sound like. What do you think? I, 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 you know, like the way I always put it is um, most musicians think that uh, the music business is filled with geniuses with huge visions. And really, and, and you just have the exact reaction that is that is that, uh, of a seasoned veteran. And what it is is you have to assume that these people have no imagination and are giving you no thought, and lead them every step of the way in as concise and fast a way possible. And at the end of the day, no matter how great the people involved with it may be, mm. the record label is a business. At the end of the day, it's an investment. They are investing and you as a person, and you as an artist, in a financial way. Sure, they're investing in you as people, but at the end of the day, they need to see a return on that investment. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at you. Obviously, they're not going to want to work with an asshole, but they want to work with somebody that is work, that will recu- that will help them recoup that investment. A hundred percent. I think like one of the th- funny things is, is like, so you said it uh, on this is like, you know, you have your speaker so that you can listen to podcasts. And one of the things I think a lot of people don't get is that they all want the record label that's passionate about their band. But one of the things that they don't get is that as we all get older, like I know what I like. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I, I listen, you know, we we're talking about five seconds of summer. It's like I listen to a whole lot of five seconds of summer and not many people are going to think a Brooklyn hipster that's 39 years old is listening to five seconds of summer. But while I'm passionate about that, I'm mostly listening to podcasts and I want to work with bands that are going to do well. So I want to see there's excitement from other people oh, before I do that, because there's so many bands I like that also don't have. 50 fans and I don't want to put all my blood, sweat and tears into that band that no one else likes but me. Cause I know I have a little bit different taste cause I'm a 39 year old guy in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's uh, and th- that's the thing. It's like you have everybody involved beyond wanting to do it on a business from a business perspective. You have to be excited about it. You have to mm-hmm. be really excited about it. And that's kind of, I touched on this uh, in uh, Jacob Tender's Variable Bitrate podcast, but I wanted to bring it up here. There's like, I know a lot of people in the music industry that are jaded, that aren't happy with their job, that just look at their days as a drag. And it's like, you know what? Like, people would kill for your job. Uh huh. Be like, you are so fortunate. Like, sure, not at, sure, like, there's pros and cons to everything, but. Be excited to be where you are. And if you're not, change where you are, you know? You have one life to live. You have one opportunity to be the you that you want to be. Don't settle for situations where you aren't excited or surrounded by excited people, you know? A hundred percent. And like, you know, like I, you know, right now I'm entering my 18th year doing this full time. And I, I have to find new challenges because there's 
sure. times I get a little bit bored and it's like, all right, I've, you know, I've made the pop punk record a thousand times in 18 years. And it's like, I have to find new ways to find the challenge of what I'm going to get better at in that pop punk record and things like that. And it's, it, it is a struggle each day. Totally. And like, if you look at a producer like Jake Sinclair, I don't know him personally, mm-hmm. but he has two Grammy nominations this year, mm-hmm. Weezer and Panic at the Disco. The dude is clearly pushing the envelope. He's clearly pushing himself. Mm-hmm. Both of those records could not be further away from each other. It, it, it's actually astounding when you listen to the two that it's the same producer, because I, I no, hear exactly. very, very little thread between the two of them. They did do that tour together, which was funny. Yes. But, uh, that, I'm going to sidetrack real quick. Yeah, yeah, that was do. the sickest tour. I didn't get to go to it, but Weezer, Panic at the Disco, and Andrew McMahon, holy shit. Yeah. Interesting thing of like a band, the headliner, who seems kind of out of touch at times, seeing like, oh, this is actually a good overlap of our fans and people they would enjoy. Crush management are very intelligent. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure directly what... Rivers Cuomo has to say about Andrew McMahon or Panic at the Disco, but clearly enough to go on tour with them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, and that's that's another thing. It's I've there are a lot of bands that in everything that they do, they kind of keep it in this inclusive, weird emo world. And like, mm-hmm. there are so many bands that like have so much to give to other areas and other formats of music. Like Pine Grove, perfect example. Yes, they are. Pine Grove, Julian Baker, Lucy Dacus, they're all kind of from this emo world, but they have that kind of, Pine Pine Grove sense, they kind of have that country side of things. Mm. Julian Baker is just the queen of songwriting. They're all kind of taking that step up and kind of giving their craft to the mainstream world. Like, Philip Phillips tweeted at Pine Grove asking them to go on tour with him. I don't know if that's a thing, but, like, that's the exact kind of thing that I mean, it's like, wow, that's crazy. I feel like a lot of bands like should be doing more to spread their wings and kind of get out of the quote unquote scene. Yeah. I mean, I guess the funny thing is, is like, to me, it's like, well, the bands you're talking about have a depth to them that I think is a very rare depth. Like, you know, I paid particular attention to Pine Grove because they're the only band to ever get popular from the town I grew up in. And... It's like that thing of like, they just have, them and Julian Baker have so much more depth than, let's call it the average emo band that I'm almost like, even if you have that aspiration, they're not really capable of the that flying that high. Yeah, absolutely. But I just, I don't know, it just kind of bums me out when the same tour package happens like four or five times, you know, it's like, there are a lot, I've seen a lot of bands tour together and it's like, what do either, what, what do you have to gain by doing this? Like your fan, like headlining band a their fans are clearly aware of support band b's Mm -hmm. fans and support band b support band b's fans are clearly aware of headliner a sir obviously you want a cohesive tour package but i just i feel like there should be more pushing the envelope i i I agree with you you know i think that's the funny thing is is what a lot of people i think when they're putting together a tour package don't think about is what is the Venn diagram intersection of new fan versus fan that's already aware of what we do that's going to make them happy when they get to the venue that night and they're not going to be hearing, you know, like, I, you know, it was like that funny thing of like, you know, like, I think about that Coheed Saves the Day tour is that I don't think they're, while talking to Chris when they get off the tour, he's like, Coheed's fans were so good to us, it's like, I also don't think that there was a lot of them that were like, woohoo, uh, a band that writes really good songs influenced by Big Star from the 70s instead of some weird prog metal band. Yeah, it's uh, like, that's the thing. And like, another thing, like, if you look at what, that exact thing that you talked about, mm-hmm. like, back in the early 2000s, you had true communities of mm-hmm. bands that truly helped each other. Like, if you look at New Jersey, you had Midtown, Saves yeah. the Day. Yeah. All those bands, My Chemical Romance, Thursday, they all collaborated and pushed each other up and really helped each other. And I don't know if that is really the same now. I mean, if I feel like you know, no matter how close bands are, there's just that level of competition. And obviously, like, I'm sure there was then, but I just, from my perspective, it just everybody was just genuinely so happy to kind of be doing that. And I think part of it might be because they were the first bands to kind of take this whole emo scene and make it like mainstream in a way. Yeah. I, you know, 
it's funny, I was out with a couple friends who, and you know, we lived in New Brunswick during those years that that was happening, and uh, I think there's this thing that every year, that original punk rock thing, because like the generation before us, which was like Rorschach, Born Against and all that, they had more of that than we did, and it just seems that with each year that kind of dies just a tiny bit. And, you know, it's like even the same thing of that, um, you know, the complaint of my age group about the younger bands is that they don't dress like they're in bands, that they just look like they went to Old Navy and they walked into the venue or they went to the thrift store and, you know, that they don't look like anything that you'd be excited about to see. And I think that that's the, just the, the change is that like everybody's becoming a little bit more um, like Adam Curtis kind of has this in his new documentary is that everything buddy's less concerned with the expression and more a part of a group consensus oh absolutely and like if you look at the bands that are doing well now it's because they really put time and effort into the expression and the presentation the perfect example of that is 21 pilots oh yeah, uh, yeah. i grew up in cincinnati ohio i saw them play to literally 21 people a number of times and they are the biggest band in the world right now yeah. because they are so intensely devoted to really putting together the absolute best show that they can. Mute Math, another band mm. that's doing that. Say Anything, Thrice, Motion mm. City Soundtrack, those are kind of bands in our neck of the woods that really put on a great show and leave mm. the fans like enthused about the band because they just saw this cathartic awesome live show I, I like that so let's get back to so so, so so you're managing bands this means you have faith in the ability to break a band in this climate is there any th thoughts you have on what you do to break a band in this climate there's really no way to just throw a band into the ether and have them immediately explode anymore like mm. that just isn't a thing it's just at the end of the day it's all about a steady positive progression it's all about forward progress uh, uh, you, you know but the, the, then there's like the basement argument to that is that like you break up for a year and you know the last time they played new york it was 40 people and then the next time it's 2300 well then you look at acceptance too doing the same thing but i'll be yeah. for a much longer break yes but yeah, I don't know. I, as far as those two bands go, I think they're definitely anomalies in that yes, sense. Like, they're the exception and, to the rule. Yeah, and like I, I love the band Basement, don't get mm -hmm. me wrong, but that was particularly strange to me because they do have a lot of like direct peers and a lot of bands that are directly influenced by them. So it was interesting to me how well-received they were when they came back. Acceptance, mm -hmm. on the other hand, very unique band, mm -hmm. not in that same situation. I'm not saying... Yeah, I'm not that, saying that you know what I'm saying. Well, that record, you know, that record's like one of those ones, like what they, they always say about the Velvet Underground, is that fifty thousand people bought those record, but fifty thousand people formed influential bands off that record, and everybody who's been making anything in this scene has heard that record and gone on to be influenced by exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, but as far as like just becoming a bigger band and kind of standing on your feet as a working artist, it's all about just forward steps. Always make sure that. You're happy, you're positive. Every tour, you do the very best you can. And it's all about working hard. Like, there's no band, no matter how powerful or good their team is, no band is just going to be able to just sit there and start getting bigger. You have to do press, you have to talk to journalists, you have to talk to your fans. Perfect example of a band that's completely self made is Set It Off. Uh, mm. I have known, I booked their very first Cincinnati shows up until they got signed and even a little bit after that. And it's this, the common theme for the band set it off is they do not stop working. They are constantly talking to fans, constantly interacting with people. They work so hard. Wonder Years, another example. Mm -hmm. They all very interactive, work very hard. And that's what it's, you have to, you can't just write good music and expect to do well. Cause at this point, everybody can write a record or can record a record that sounds good. So in that sense, the playing field is even, I feel. But you have to just bust your ass. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I think it's the thing is, is you have to have music that resonates with people. And like everybody can make something that sounds good, but does it actually connect with the listener is a different story. But then there also is just like, you know, your music will help you do some of that legwork if it's really good and connecting with people, but you still have to do a lot of that legwork. Oh, absolutely. So tell me about your podcast. So my podcast, we, uh, it's my, one of my best friends, Tyler, he's a 
old friend of mine from Cincinnati. He used to play in a band that I would hang out with all the time back when I was in high school. But it's called Neighborhood Play Podcast, and we basically focus on the cultural aspect of sports, like how fans interact with their teams, how a city responds when so-and-so happens on the field. And from that, we're kind of branching out into kind of more like meaningful conversations with the athletes themselves. Uh, if you watch ESPN, you're going to just hear, oh, so how did you prepare for this game? How do you feel about the opposing quarterback? And it's just cut and dry answers. We've had a handful of athletes on and like we want to really talk about what it meant to play sports at a professional level, what it means to be a professional athlete and the trials and tribulations that come with that. And then beyond that, this is hilarious. We are just two idiots who love sports and have a good report talking about it. But we actually broke a couple of somewhat major stories just because we got a couple of leads that thought it would be funny if we were the ones that broke the stories. So we've done huh. that the last couple of weeks. <laughs> that's really cool. I think that's a really unique angle. As somebody who has, pays no attention to sports, one of my things is like when I have to sit through it with my friends, I'm like, dude, I don't even watch this and I hear these guys <laughs> say the same fucking answer every time. How do you sit through this? And... <laughs> well, I think that's really interesting that you're focusing on a different thing. Well, and the other side of it, like we do primarily interview band dudes about their favorite sports teams just because that's a network that I have. And mm -hmm. as you, as somebody that also works in music, you're a fly on the wall for just as many interviews as I am. It's no different in music. Yes. How's your record? How's tour? What was it like recording the record? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Everybody gets hit with the same question. So we feel like, and we've experienced this with all of our guests, they like the ability to talk about something other than that and have it be something productive that promotes their band. Like, they're not just sitting down and doing a two-song acoustic session. They're talking about something that they're passionate about. I, I think that's really rad. So the last question is, tell me what you have coming up on the horizon. Uh, so in the immediate future, I will be with I will be tour managing and handling merch for Isley for February into early April. And then the timing of this worked out perfectly. I get to go to both Cincinnati Reds and Atlanta Braves opening day. Nice. Because timing works out. So I have Isley right up until Reds opening day. Got about two weeks off, and then I'll be with Two Door Cinema Club for their tour. Oh, um, cool. That's awesome. I love that band. They are uh, a tour that I was supposed to do in November fell through, and I was scrambling to find something, and uh, I ended up getting reached, getting hit up. Hey, do you want to do this tour with this band, Two Door Cinema Club? I didn't really know much about them. said, yeah, absolutely. I need work. They are the most amazing band and crew. I, they just treated me so well on that first tour. They are tremendous people to work for and their record is fantastic agreed very awesome if you enjoyed this episode please remember the golden rule of the internet that if you enjoy something you got for free please tweet facebook share or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 